Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Well, how is everybody? You're all, all ready and awake and ready to go? Yeah? I was going to make you stand up and actually look each other in the eye. One of the things that we find in the next generation is uh, that they don't have actual natural social skills. So we have to teach them. When you shake a hand, you look them in the eye, you know, and you smile and you welcome them. Isn't that funny? I guess it's not funny. Okay, so interesting enough, uh, I remember battling with my parents after they had come to Christ and I was still an unsaved uh, church-attending teenager and the tension was pretty thick, you know, it was pretty rough. And then as a single man, I remember liking a gal and her saying to me, the worst thing you can hear as a young man, I just want to be friends. And uh, amazing enough, uh, there was a lot of tension there as well. As a young man, a 22-year-old, a student pastor, I remember struggling with parents of teens over the best course to follow uh, with their students, a difficult tension there. I remember in a church that I pastored before, there was a, a woman who had memorized most of the New Testament amazing, but she was intensely bitter at all men because she had an unsaved husband. Very tense situation. I recall missionaries uh, out in the field who couldn't get along with each other, and it was really harming the work of Christ in a foreign land. And I just became, (laughs) you know, aware, and I know you are aware of the fact that relational tension can be a norm in our lives. We're all going to experience it at some point. The great Apostle Paul had tension over John Mark with Barnabas. Remember that situation? And Peter uh, felt a very strong relationship pressure from the Christian Jews in Galatia. And the Corinthians were experiencing a massive amount of relational strife with each other. And all that leads to two things. One is that God, our God, desires for you to work at pursuing relational harmony. He really does. There's many, many commands. We're going to look at a few this morning. And in most cases, Christians are to address relational tension when it occurs between you and another believer. You're supposed to address it. Now, what do most believers do, right? Let's be honest. They avoid it completely, right? They ignore it. They, worse, they blame others. They Uh, uh, accuse others, and like Adam, they hide somewhere in the garden, you know? Uh, Mature believers actually are those who stand firm, and maybe you're a little older this morning, so maybe it's sit firm, Uh, but wherever, you know, taking your place on God's Word, understand mature believers are those who will address relational tension. If you're going to stand firm you've got to be able to address those relationships that are difficult. Now, you probably have your place open in Philippians chapter 4, and that's good. But before you get there, I want you to take a look at John chapter 17. Just a couple of passages in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fourth Gospel. And understand that this is more important to God than you think. Some of us uh, need to understand the theology behind relationships. It is very true that God's very nature is to be in relational harmony. From eternity to past to eternity to future, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in relational harmony. God is one, yet He is three equal persons, and one God and in perfect harmony before creation, and will be in relationship harmony forever in the future. Forever. 
And the only way you can actually glorify God is to pursue the same relational harmony. Now, we can't always achieve it, but we can pursue it. Which means when there's tension with others, you're to address it. Now, your culture might be saying, well, that's not proper. Uh, regardless of what your culture says, we need to supersede culture and say what the Scripture says. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, there are some rotten, horrible things that are a part of American culture that go contrary to the Scripture, and we have to say no to those pressures and yes to the Scripture. Every culture is the same. So whatever your culture tells you, if it's in violation with the Scripture, then your culture is wrong. Period. doesn't matter who you are. And this is an amazing thing and a, wonder, a uniting thing in the Scripture. And if you're going to emulate the Trinity, you're going to have to pursue relational harmony. Now, Jesus was very pointed. Look at John 17, verse 11. Keep them in your name. He prays this. The name which you have given me, that they may be, what? One, even as we, Father, are one. Look at verse 22. John 17. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are what? One. The theology of unity is clear and simple. It's a very deep theology. You're to be one as God is one. Though you're different persons, we're to emulate the Trinity in our pursuit of oneness. That's the theology behind relationships. Even in marriage, after the incarnation, the role of the father and the son, after the incarnation, models the roles of husband and wife. It's true. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. We are to emulate the Trinity. We bring Him glory by pursuing this. You say, Chris, how do we pursue relational oneness when Christians are, are so dumb? Uh, they're warped. Uh, they do dumb things. They hurt you. Well, God gives you a game plan in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you, this is worth at least a slab of Vegemite, okay? Uh, and so, or Marmite, whatever. Yeah, Vegemite. How many Vegemites here? How many Marmites here? How many I don't touch the stuff, whatever? Okay, all right. Wow! That's a lot of people. I thought you guys were sold out to this stuff. Okay. Anyway, understand there's some basic things that you find in the New Testament. I want to rehearse those before we open up this passage. All right? First is, number one, live humbly for others. You want to live in relational harmony, then live humbly with others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 calls us to give and sacrifice, to not focus on ourselves, but focus on them, not you. Their mistakes, listen, may cause you hurt. They may cause you time and, and cost you money, uh, embarrassment, trouble. But you're not living for them. You're living for what? Christ, and it's no longer about you. Can I hear an amen to that? The incredible kenosis passage found in Philippians chapter 2 is there to press us. Christ giving up his rights and expressions of God, not permanently, but basically showing us his humbling of himself. Those things were to motivate us to have a right relationship with each other. So your life is no longer about you. And to remember that then assists you in maintaining relational harmony. Secondly, focus on the gifts and strengths of others. Say, why should I do that? Because you don't want to focus on their weaknesses, right? I mean, uh, practically speaking, when a hummingbird goes into a desert, it finds a flower because it's looking for a flower. When a vulture goes into a desert, it finds a carcass. Why? Because it's looking for a carcass. What are you looking for? Carcasses are flowers. 
in people's lives. You understand what I'm saying? Where's your focus? Focus on the gifts. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, talks about the, basically the way we're put together. We're gifted in unique ways. You realize what this means? That everybody in this room has a unique way of putting Christ on display that nobody else can. And that's a treasure. You're all basically tools in the master's tool chest to accomplish his purposes his way. And when you begin to look at people that way, it's, it's a wonderful freeing thing. I don't focus on the people of our church, their weaknesses, and strength, unless they slap me with them. I, I, I'm not going to deal with them. I'm going to focus on the way that they could put Christ on display. So many of us are so worried about not sinning, which we should be, that we forget that half of sanctification is not only fleeing sin, but what? Pursuing Christ. And half the time, we would actually overcome some of those things that drag us down if our focus was pursuing Christ. As we pursue Him, we're actually running away from sin, correct? And therefore, we need to get our focus, even as we deal with others, on the way God put them together. And to focus on that, I believe that's the way God wants us to. That's why He calls us a body with all these unique gifts. So focus on their gifts. Number three, let love cover a multitude of sins. You want to get along with people, you want to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, then get over yourself. (laughs) How's that for preaching? Okay? Christians are not to be the offended victim. Now, this is probably not true here in Australia, but in the U.S., everybody's walking around going, I'm the victim. You hurt me. You said something. And it's crazy. And we basically lovingly and just carefully, graciously say, please go to another church. Okay? Because... (laughs) Understand, if you're the offended victim, you're never going to get along with anybody. You're always going to be offended. You're always going to be causing a a controversy. Uh, Get over yourself and let love cover a multitude of sins. That's 1 Peter 4, 8. Give grace to actions or words that should not have been done, should not have been said, but they weren't done intentionally. Now, you really study the doctrine of homarchaeology, the doctrine of sin, you'll understand in Numbers 15, there's actually a distinction between sin. There's intentional sin and unintentional sin, defiant sin and undefiant sin. Listen, if somebody blurps out something that offends you, how many times have you blurped out something that offended somebody? Get over yourself and go give them grace. I get phone calls from my congregation on Sunday afternoon. I don't much anymore, but on Sunday afternoon, and we're talking on the patio, and they're going... I I wanted to tell you, Pastor, I I didn't mean to say that. And I'm like, first thing out of my mouth is, I don't remember what you said. Oh No, I said this and this and this, and I'm trying to recall the conversation. I'm going, you know what? I didn't see that. I didn't go that way. I didn't evaluate. I didn't judge you. We're just talking. I just love you. You know what? And if there was something that really bothered me, I'd tell you. I mean, if you couldn't get rid of it, couldn't let it go, I would tell you. Don't ever worry about that. I don't get those phone calls anymore because people basically say, you know what, we love each other, we trust each other, and if it was defiant, if it was dangerous, if it was ongoing, if it was intentional, we're going to deal with it. But if it's just, it kind of blurped out and it wasn't, you could tell that it just kind of said or whatever, you know, or an attitude or something, I'm just not going to go around and correct everybody's attitude. Are you? Do you want to do that? No. Please say amen. Okay, so... Understand, let love cover a multitude of sins. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're working our way. We're not going to be perfect till when? Heaven? Are you there yet? No. So let's get over ourselves. Sorry, I'm, I'm taking too long on these. Okay, number four. 
As far as it depends on you, make relational peace. Right? You know that verse, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you. Make every effort to correct a relational tension when you can't, regardless whether it was you or others who caused it. They hurt you. Let it go. Just move on. Try to make it right. And then number five, lovingly confront when it's intentional, when it's defiant, when it's dangerous, when it's ongoing. Matthew 5, um, excuse me, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, Galatians 6, 1, church discipline, the process of lovingly confront, confronting one another. This is how we confront in fact, uh, I was actually in the Philippines and uh, loved that country, and I was fellowshipping with a large church. There's about 300 people, and they're all in this gigantic room. And the pastor, the preaching pastor, I'm talking to him, and a saint comes up and starts talking to him. And he had this technique that actually helped people get along with each other. And his technique was he'd be talking to them, and they'd say something like, you know, Jeff, Jeff Honick, uh, he's starting to really bug me. Okay, this, this person would say this to the pastor, and he would say, stop right there. He would just, literally, I watched him do it, stop right there. He'd go, come with me, he'd grab him by the arm, he'd march him down, and say, Jeff, this saint has something to talk to you about, and walk away. <laughs> and you know what? Very few people actually started talking about other people. They would just go to each other. Does that make sense? Because he just encouraged that process. Listen. We need to be serious about our sin, but at the same time, we need to recognize how to deal with it in the Scripture. And stable people are those who pursue relational harmony. They stand firm. They stand on God's Word. And and those who address relational tension, and they don't ignore it, they don't blame, they don't hide, they don't talk to others. I mean, it's obvious, right? Spiritual stability depends on mutual love, intertwined in order to support one another. And Paul wants that kind of harmony in the Philippian church. He really does. But instead, there was intense disagreement at Philippi. Instead of things really going well, there's two women who are threatening the health of the entire church. And so God, through the Apostle Paul, wants to keep sins like partiality, sins like criticism, bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, accusation, judging hearts, slander from spreading in the church. So what he teaches the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, look there now, go back to Philippians 4, the main command in verse 1 is stand firm. And then it's followed by seven key commands or statements which describe those who do stand firm. And now you've seen it. You've seen Christians who are stable, who are mature. You say, I want to be like that person. Well, part of that is to adopt the attributes that are found in these nine verses. And the first one is found, we're looking at this morning, a very good one, found in verses 2 and 3. Take a look at it, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I urge Eudia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, verse 3, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now this female fight is floating below the surface this entire Philippian letter. You can smell it like a great white shark. It's circling And you can see it as in certain exhortations. And now it's come to the surface to take a big bite out of what's going on here in Philippi. And interesting enough, these warring women are going at it. They're disagreeing with each other and causing others to take sides. Now, 
My understanding of this is that this disagreeing between women has only happened once in 2,000 years of church history. So it's found right here. It is. It's amazing. Praise God. So look back through the letter. <laughs> Sorry. I believe in the gift of sarcasm, if you could tell. I found it first flesh alonians. Uh, so see if you could spot the fin of disunity. Remember <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, he says, So that whether I came to see you or remain, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So this has got to be underneath what's happening there, even in chapter 1. In chapter 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And now in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, this disunity in this church is directly addressed. I mean, the shark has surfaced. They know exactly what's going on. And this spiritual body is under internal attack. That's what's happening. And not only is God a perfect unity... But as believers, you're no longer completely individual, right? When you're saved, are you not immersed a part of the body of Christ? Yes. So you're an organ in the body. You're a brick in the building. You're a sheep, a part of the flock. You no longer think of yourself merely as an individual, but as a part of a community. You belong to Christ, but you also belong to his bride and one another as found expression in the local church. And therefore, you cannot and you must not tolerate division in your midst. Now understand, your faith is personal, but it's not private. It's not private. You must not be the brick who's removed from the building. You must not be the sheep who's standing alone. And you must not be the liver that's separated from the body. You're one body with others, just as God is one. And therefore, Christian, don't, don't <laughs> you know, move down this road of relational tension because when you do that, you make the body look spastic. It's like a body that doesn't get along with itself. We're supposed to give a, a, an imagery of the person and body of Christ. Therefore, I've broken these two verses down into seven points. Don't panic. The first three or four are a little long. And then the last ones go really fast. So, you know, we get toward the end, you're panicking. It'll be okay. We'll get there. All right? And so, interspersed in all of it, there'll be principles that'll guide you in dealing with conflict. So, Paul reminds the Philippians, in their church, there are, number one, contentious problems. It starts with contentious problems. He says, verse 2, I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche, or Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Now these two women are in relational conflict. These fighting females are women of influence in the church because they had look at verse 3, they had worked with Paul in the cause of the gospel. And you know how Paul began his evangelistic efforts, right? He preached at a synagogue, but typically in Philippi they didn't have enough Jews for a synagogue. You had to have 12 uh, 10 men. And so therefore because there wasn't 10 Jews in that community, uh, they didn't have enough to support a synagogue, and so some faithful Jewish women would then gather by the river for worship, the main river in town. And in Acts 16:13, Paul says he began speaking to the women who had assembled, and he shared the gospel with them. Now, Lydia, of course, came to know Christ at that situation, and that group of women might have included Judea and Syntyche. We don't know for certain. We don't know why these disagreeing darlings were creating havoc in the church, but these two malign maidens, uh, malignant maidens, had a full tank of the wrong gas. I mean, they were not getting along. They were dividing the church. So Paul says, gals, live in harmony. Verse 2, live in harmony. 
This is much bigger than just get along. Live in harmony means to think the same. Get on the same page, gals. And when Paul says think the same in the Lord, he has more than just the same page theologically and biblically. Uh, These ladies, the disputing daughters, to get on the same page, really to live in harmony means to submissively get along in harmony in the Lord. Literally, live in harmony in the Master. Christ is the Master. He's the one in charge. He's the Lord of this conflict. Submit to the Master. Christ is the one you're in conflict with. You're, You're not getting it. It is Christ you're offending, gals. Not you too, not your issue. It is Christ at stake here. Think the same. He's the one who gave everything for us. He's the Master. He's the Lord. Remember, in the Lord. But they did this. They heard us. And Paul says, remember what Christ did for you. And remember that He is the Lord of all. You get it? He's the Master, and He doesn't want you fighting. He's the one who sacrificed all for you. So he's right away saying, I want you to be submissive to the Lord in this. Submit to your master and stop fighting. So relational harmony, principle number one, is that focus on Christ as the master in charge, the Savior who gave all, not the persons in the conflict. Even as you come alongside and help in conflict, you want to keep your focus on Christ and not on the conflict itself. In order to help, Paul makes number two, the clear cut please clear cut please uh, that started with letter c so here we go verse two i urge Judea and i urge syntyche to live in harmony in the lord urge is to encourage to call together it's like a small child in rebellion and you kind of rush to pick them up and hold them tight you've done that right there's a child maybe they're fighting or struggling they're very young you grab one of them and you just kind of hold them to yourself right that's the imagery he's giving. That's what urge means, to hold them and carry with you. That's the picture. It's to grab a hold of you verbally and intimately plead with you to move you in a manner in which I'm asking. And did you notice both women here, did you catch that, are equally urged. He could have used the verb urge once and listed both women, but he doesn't. He says, I urge Judea and I urge, it's an equal rights urging here, okay? So you couldn't really blame one above the other. They're both being urged here. And never forget, to resolve Christian conflict, you are to take sides. You are to take sides. Yes, not Judea against Syntyche, and not Syntyche against Judea. No, you're not to take their side. You're to take the Lord's side. Every time you deal with an issue, it's Christ who's the issue, not the issue. Right? Not the problem, not the struggle. It's Christ. And Christ has to be central in this. When you stand firm, or if you're older, sit firm. You're committed to any, in any conflict, I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side. I'm not on the ones I like and the one I don't like. I'm on the Lord's side. I want to do what He wants. So principle number two, relational harmony. Principle number two, take God's side by studying God's Word applying authoritatively to the conflict without partiality. Is it possible each lady was equally to blame? Yeah, it could be. But they will be one in heaven, and therefore if they're going to please Christ and they're going to grow, and they're going to mature and stand firm, they've got to pursue oneness on earth. They really do. So what makes this situation difficult is there are two groups in opposition, and there's been no resolution up to this point. These women need help. So Paul 
calls upon a brother to step up and bring relational harmony. That's number three in your outline. Contrasting persons. Contrasting persons. Now, there are two lay-into lassies making up first the culprits. They're the culprits, the gals. I urge Udia and I urge Syntyche. Now, these were not uh, weak women. They were committed Christians. They were helping Paul further the gospel. These are involved women. Their struggle was not doctrinal. If it had been doctrinal, Paul would have addressed that doctrinally. It was ministerial, it was philosophical, which means direction, or it was personal. Regardless, there's intense friction between two high-powered Roman tiger women. All right? These are high-powered gals. You know, they're not, you know, just sitting in in the back there this is a this is a big deal and it's dividing the church and it's not worth dividing the church uh it was about a year ago i talked to a man who visited our church and he was thinking about joining our church or becoming a part of our church and he told me why he came and it horrified me so i want to let you know in event it horrified me he said that he was at a store with his wife he'd been going to another church for 10 years and the the teaching pastor of that large church was in the store with his wife and they walked by him in the aisle and didn't acknowledge them in other words this older couple were ignored by the teaching pastor they walked right by now they could have been on a mission i don't know what's going on you know you you could be going i got to get diapers and my kid needs them bad and i got to get out the door who knows what's going on but they ignored them and on the basis of that they were going to leave that church and come to our church and my jaw went over that are you kidding me? And that must have kept him away because I never saw him again. Uh, but by the way, now when I'm in a store, I just say hi to strangers. So I, 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 whatever. whatever. Understand, listen, th- this is a, that's a slight issue. And this is a more serious issue, and it's causing the church a great deal of harm, and so that's why Paul addresses it. Now, we don't know anything about these gals, but they're infamous. Uh, they'll probably be in heaven. You'll get to meet them, I hope. Maybe their names will give you a little idea who they are. They're beautiful names. Don't name your daughters Jezebel, you know. Never name your daughter Gomer, okay? Bad, bad idea. But you can name them Udia and Syntyche because Udia means prosperous journey or sweet fragrance. Syntyche means good luck. Now, this seems a little harsh though, right? Doesn't this seem harsh to you? Paul's calling them out. It's like me going, Jeff, right here, you know, Jeff, you know, calling Jeff out. This is uh, naming names. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Do you feel the weight of this? Why does Paul list their names here? Well, I read one commentator, and he said, because Paul's chicken. You know, he waited until he was 800 miles away under house arrest in Rome before he would name these women. And I'm thinking, what? Who writes this stuff? Threw that book away. The best answer is this. Everybody already knew. The reason he mentions it is everybody's aware of it. You know how that happens. All of a sudden, everybody goes, man, we've got to get these women to get along. And everybody knew. It's very public. So he seeks to put an end to this conflict by fixing it, by calling them out, in a sense, and commanding a brother to come alongside and help them. So relational harmony Principle number three, Christian conflict often 
requires spiritually mature third party, another godly individual to solve the problem. Now, Paul appeals to one person in particular to help these bickering Bettys. Okay, so secondly, the coach. Who's the coach? Look at verse 3. It starts with, Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women. Now, who is this coach that he wants to have help these women? Who's this true companion? His name is Suzukos. Suzukos. It's a name, Suzukos. Now, where do you get that from? Well, the, the word, the Greek term, true companion, is the Greek word, Suzukos. And the word there, companion, pictures two oxen and a yoke pulling the same load. It describes a comrade or a yoke fellow or a partner or an equal in a specific task. And in this case, solving this spiritual conflict, causing disharmony, it is Suzukos, and he's described uh, here in verse 3. Now, who is he? Who is this guy? Well, one view states this unnamed true companion was a man that was Paul's yoke fellow in ministry. But here's what's strange about this. He just named the two ladies. He also names Clement of Rome and other fellow workers. Why wouldn't he name the true companion, right? Another view is that Suzukos is singular, which would be a name, but it could mean refer to the whole church of Philippi. I don't think that's it. That doesn't make any sense. The best view is to not translate Suzukos, true companion, but to translate it Suzukos. It's his name. That's the guy's name. So the verse should say, indeed, Suzukos, I ask you also to help these women. So who's Suzukos? Who? I don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't say, but it's likely he was probably one of the elders. He talks about the elders right there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He mentions including the overseers and deacons. Suzukos was probably an elder. Uh, he is exhorting Suzukos as an elder to shepherd these women, to restore the church to unity. And Paul calls them, uh, and he calls him a true comrade here because Suzukos is living up to the meaning of his name. We've had other biblical characters live up to the meaning of their name, right? Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, Onesimus, who is one who is useful. And so Suzukos is a true companion. He lives up to his name. He says, be that guy. Well, what does Paul ask Suzukos to pursue? Number four, the caring processes. The caring process. He says, verse three, I want you to, now this is where you've got to circle this in your Bible. The main verb in these two verses is right here. I want you to help. The verb to help is the main verb. He's asking Suzukos to be a peacemaker, to help resolve this disagreement. And he says, I'm repeatedly asking you over and over. With a joyful, caring anticipation, Paul adds the word yes in the Greek text. So you don't see the flavor of this in the English. Let me tell you what it is in the original Greek. It is, yes, I ask you also, Suzukos. And so there's a very positive frame to what he's saying here. I don't know why they don't translate it in English. But yes is there in the Greek language. And what he wants him to do? Yes, to help these women. To help, main verb, to help is a command. It's to be obeyed. It's part of describing what it means to stand firm. So if you're going to stand firm, you're going to help others in their relational tension. And to help is a pointed at a singular person, one guy describing an ongoing, continual action pointing to a process of bringing about a resolution of a conflict. It's go for it. Help these ladies. Harmony is rarely established in a single moment. Would you agree with that? 
I mean, even with our children, you don't create harmony usually and all of a sudden it's done. You know, it takes a moment. Sometimes when there's tension in a marriage, it takes time to establish harmony. Well, this verb to help is in a voice which demands that Suzukos would act upon himself. So act upon yourself, get on it, Suzukos, continually help these women. And he's commanding them to help them to get along with each other. Now, this verb to help is awesome. Because if you were reading it and you were Greek, you would understand what he's saying immediately. It's a very unusual verb to use at this point. The verb actually means, picture this now, to seize, to arrest, and to apprehend. It's a policeman term. (laughs) Don't you love that? Come on, picture this. He's telling Suzukos, cuff these women and toss them in jail. No, that's not what he's saying. No, he's saying... Physically capture them with your hands, aggressively surround them, and come to their aid. Now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've been out with people, and there's little kids running around, right? And one of those little kids goes right out into the street, and he's going to be, you know, hit by a car or whatever. And what do you do? You run after them, you grab them, and you bring them back to the place of safety, Right? That's exactly what he's saying here to these women. I want Suzukos, I want you to grab those women, not literally, and bring them back so that they would be in harmony with each other. That's what he means by help. It's a beautiful picture and a very strong picture of getting this job done. He's commanding Suzukos, get in there, grab a hold of this situation, don't let them escape until you bring them under the authority of the master. I remember even as a junior high pastor, I had a couple of staff gals that didn't get along. You know what I did? I wasn't trying to apply this directly. I said, look, you two ladies, this is it, I'm done. You go into that room and you don't come out until you're either in racial harmony or you're both off staff. And you know what? They went in the room. I don't know what they did. They prayed together. They, got, they worked it out. They came out. Never a problem again. That's a little bit of the imagery here. Deal with it so we can get on with life, right? Because this is messing things up. So relational harmony principle number four, resolving conflict usually requires a process, not a single step. What for? Well, number five goes faster now. Don't panic. Clear purposes. I ask you... Also, to help these women to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, why? Verse 3 says, because these women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are significant gals who have been influential for the kingdom of God by proclaiming the singular message that brings salvation. Right? The gospel, it, it does reflect a lifestyle, but the gospel primarily is a message. And it's the message called the good news. Do you know why it's called good news? You need to know. Are you ready? I'm going to tell you. Every faith, every religion on planet earth, every single one teaches you one thing. You can work your way to heaven. Light enough candles, pray enough prayers, do enough things, throw sticks on the ground, do whatever you got to do, offer. You can work your way to heaven. To heaven. Only one faith on planet earth, one, tells us God alone says you can't ever work your way to heaven. You'll never make it. God had to do the work on your behalf, and God did it by chasing you down and awakening you and giving you faith to respond. That's how good news it is. And the reason we call it good news is God has solved our problem. 
God took care of our sin problem. God did it. And it's good news. And these women are proclaiming the gospel. And he says, I want you to help these women because these women are significant women in the spreading and proclaiming of the gospel. So get on this. The purpose he lays out for Zazukos here is to help him uh, because these two gals have intensely labored with Paul in proclaiming the gospel. It really has. So these are team players. And so these divisive darlas are focusing on eternity and they sacrifice to make certain that the only message that can give you hope, that can secure you for heaven, was being proclaimed. They're teaching that God alone can save you. And he wants them to be able to be freed to get back to that purpose. And so relational principle number five is harmony is cultivated by focusing on priority issues, not petty ones. Right? The main thing. This is why this is important. And Paul says there are other saints at Philippi who can help. Yes, number six, confirming players. Confirming players. Verse three, together, he says, with Clement. Heard that name before? Also, and the rest of my fellow workers. Now, he mentions another leader, a group of fellow workers. Clement, most likely an elder. Now, we don't know, and so don't make it dogmatic, but there was a very famous first century Christian, Clement of Rome. This could be him. Uh, could be Clement I, he's sometimes known by. Those are all guesses. We don't know anything more about him. And he says, Clement, I want you to help Suzukos in resolving this conflict between these critical Carlas, uh, for, you know, proving that there were well-known women and definitely spiritual tiger women in Philippi. These are great gals. And Paul says, and the rest of my fellow workers, all of you get involved in this. Get this thing over with. Get involved. Get tied into this. Sometimes it, it requires a bunch of people saying, would you knock it off? You know, stop this because this is not important. The rest of my fellow workers. He didn't name them by name. Sometimes you kind of wish he would have named them by name. Maybe they felt bad that they weren't named by name. You ever get sad when somebody doesn't call you out or recognize you? You know, the interesting thing, Hebrews 6.10 tells us that God never forgets your labor. God never forgets your service. God is not so unjust, uh, Hebrews 6.10, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And what's even better than all this is, number seven, the ceaseless promises. Verse three, look how verse three ends. Look at the very end of verse three, whose names are in the what? The book of life. Wow. What a guarantee. Clement gets a pass. The rest of us are, you know, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but Clement's in. Clement can get a little little drink and sit by the, you know, the sea and wait for the next bus to heaven because he's in, okay? Paul says he's in the book of life. That's supposed to be funny. Thanks for chuckling. But anyway, if, if you're in this book, the book of life, then you're guaranteed heaven, correct? If you're in the book of life, are you guaranteed you're in? Yes? Sure you are. When Paul went to the third heaven, he must have peeked to see who's in there because he says, Clement, you're in. And uh, I was once mentioned in a book uh, by a famous author and because um, I kept begging him to write it, but that's nothing compared to being in the book of life. That's the book you've got to be in. There are books kept in heaven which seemingly keep documentation of everything ever done by anyone on earth. They're extensive. Some take these books figuratively, representing God's omniscience, but 
we cannot assume these books aren't real books since it'd be easy for the biblical authors to say the all-knowing God judges everyone. He could have said that, but he says, no, there are books. There are books. And the most important of these books is the book of life, which names uh, of God's people are written. It's eight times in the New Testament the book of life is named, once in Psalms, here in Philippians, and six times in the book of Revelation. Twice in Exodus, it's called your book. Once in Daniel, it's called the book. And other passages refer to it as the scroll of heaven. What is it? What is the book of life? I'm going to help you. In fact, it just absolutely paints the right picture when you understand what they did in ancient times. Now, you understand ancient times, every city was a walled city, right? And they had guards at the gates of a walled city. And those guards also had roles, roles, lists of names of those who lived in that city. So as you entered, the guards of the city, if they didn't know you, would check your name against the list in order to keep out criminals and enemies. So that's the history behind Revelation 21:27. Listen to it. Speaking of heaven, God reminds you, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, the book of life is that list that basically is checked off for you to be able to go into heaven, the city of heaven forever. And Paul just reminded the born-again Philippians that they're citizens of heaven. He just said it in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. They're in the book of life, which is checked at the gates. And because Suzukos and Clement and fellow workers and elders pursued Christ with a faithful, passionate lifestyle commitment, he's confident they're citizens of heaven. But he doesn't mention Eutyche and Syntyche here, does he? By implication, though these two women shared in the work of the gospel, their current disunity is raising a question as to whether they should be in the book of life. In comparison to the faithful, these women need to realize they need to repent of their disunity because they're raising a question as to whether they're truly born again. By this constant ongoing sin in their life, they're actually manifesting. Now, let me help you with something. This will scare you a little bit. We are in Christ. Once we're in Him, we are eternally secure. Can I hear an amen to that? You are. The expression of eternal security, though, is called assurance of salvation. And assurance of salvation is only seen in the direction of your life. If the direction of your life is headed toward Christ, you have assurance of salvation. The moment you head away from Christ as a lifestyle, as a, I'm not talking about an individual decision. As a lifestyle, you now have lost your assurance of salvation. You may be eternally secure, maybe not. We don't know, but your assurance of whether you truly are born again is lost as you pursue the wrong direction, as you pursue sin. The moment you repent of that and pursue of Christ, you then gain assurance of salvation. That's how it's described in 2 Peter chapter 1, that these things will be yours and increasing. That's how it's described in the letter of 1 John, when it says that these things would be manifested in your life, otherwise you're a liar. And so therefore he's saying as you pursue Christ, you have assurance. As you don't pursue Christ, you don't have assurance. Your eternal security is between you know, God. God, that's in the wisdom and counsel of God, not you. You only experience your eternal security as you walk in obedience. As you walk in disobedience, you lose that confidence or assurance. Are you tracking with me? So one of them is with God, one of them is with us. How do we know? It's the direction of your life. Now, you say, well, any moment? No, the overall direction of your life. 
Do all of us sin and stumble every day? Yes or no? Yes, we do. That's not talking about it. It's talking about the general direction of your life. If you're saying no to Christ and yes to sin as a direction of life, then at that point, we don't know whether you're a Christian or not. You can't know. Well, yeah, but I prayed a prayer. Well, wait a minute. You could be a tear. You could be somebody who looks like the real thing, but not. Does that make sense? It needs to be manifested in your life. And so what he's saying to the ladies here in a very subtle and gracious way, hey, these guys are in the book of life. You need, you need to make sure you're in the book of life, and you need to get rid of this ongoing sin and pursue Christ. That's what he's telling them. So, I know you're struggling with it. You know, Chew on that a little bit. You'll find it true in the New Testament. These manifestations of assurance are experienced as you walk in obedience, as you walk in love, as you walk according to sound doctrine, as you walk in enduring and pursuing Christ. So, letter A, conflict is inevitable. Relational tension is going to happen in every church, even healthy churches. In Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go to him, show him your fault in private. In fact, the variant reading there, if your brother sins against you, so it's personal sin. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. At times, brothers and sisters will sin against you. At times, there will be anger between believers. It's inevitable, which is why you need to be prepared to deal with these tensions biblically. Letter B, hesitate entering into a conflict where Christ does not rule hearts. You say, what do I mean by that? Proverbs 26.17 like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. So don't be the strife police, right? Because you're going to get bit. That's what he's saying. Standing firm means addressing relational tension, but not necessarily seeking to address every relational tension between non-Christians or so-called Christians. As a Christian, you're a part of a church, meaning you must deal with tensions in that local church family. That is not always the case with those outside the church family. Uh, letter C, conflict must be resolved or contained. This struggle was going on in Philippi way too long, and that's why Paul brings it out. It was doing damage to the church. So he got Suzuko's, Clement, fellow workers, all the elders involved to correct it. But it should not have gone on as long as it did. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before you go to the altar and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. A single Sunday should not go by that you do not correct an issue between you and a brother or sister in this church. In fact... Communion, if you study 1 Corinthians 11, our unity is a major issue. And therefore, you should not partake in communion until that issue has been at least addressed or pursued. That's the way God laid it out for us. He loves us enough so that we would bring Him glory. We don't want to pretend. And only God can pull this off. Would you agree with that? Only God can make that happen. As far as it depends on you, as soon as possible, seek to resolve the relation. Hey, if you address it, they're not interested, they shut it down or whatever, you did your part. Don't delay in pursuing unity. Protect from disunity. It's always easier to deal with it when it's in its infancy. When it gets older and mature, it becomes deadly. It says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you, again, they're caught up in it. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. They're caught up in it. You who are spiritual... 
Restore such a one. Spiritual in the context there means in the Spirit. You're dependent, filled with the Spirit of God. You're dependent upon Him. You're walking according to the Word of God. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too might not be tempted. Letter D, conflict has its roots in sin, which can only be cured by Christ and salvation. Amen to that? And by dependence upon the Spirit of God and a will to obey God's Word and sanctification. So today, if you're going, man, I'm in conflict with everybody, it could be that you need to turn to Christ. You need to cry out and say, open up my heart and give me a, a new heart, the one that would want to be right with my brothers and sisters. And today for Christians, depend on God's Spirit, step out on obedience to God's Word and make things right. Uh, with your brothers and sisters, you must not delay. Standing firm has a lot to do with how you deal with other people. It's not just a private deal. Our faith is not merely just our, our own little private little world. It's we're interconnected to one another. And that interconnectedness, by the way, is one of the greatest witnesses to the world of the reality of Jesus Christ. That connectedness in marriage and in our relationships show the world what Christ can do that nobody else can. Because no one in this world can get along except for those who are in Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for just this first look. We do want to stand firm. We want a people who rise above. Oh, Lord, we want to be men and women of doctrine, and men who know the Word and know theology. But Father, help us to not just be so heady that we forget the practical, common ways in which we honor and glorify You in everyday practical theology life. So help us to pursue these steps to honor You and glorify You and how we deal with one another We'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would be life-changing for us and would motivate us to correct and to seek reconciliation, to seek to be one heart, one mind with our brothers and sisters. And we'll give you all the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.